All right, at this time we're going to uh, read our scripture, and this morning is, uh, this morning's scripture is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Would you please stand with me as we read from God's word? And it says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even then, my illness was a trial to you. You did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was a, were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed by, about you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord God, we come before you and seek your Holy Spirit to fill Pastor Kyle. God, I thank you for what you've done in him to prepare him for this message. God, I pray you would fill us as we hear it as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, well, well. So good to see everybody this morning. God bless you. We're... we're um, Chugging along in this wonderful letter um, to the Galatians. If you're new here, um, or kind of new here, we sort of have this, this habit. This, it's more of a habit. It's more of a conviction um, than anything else. Um, we, we systematically work through books of the Bible um, because uh, we are convinced here that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So what we, we like to do is we go through books of the Bible so that we don't miss topics that maybe aren't as popular or as exciting, right? Sometimes when you don't work through a book of the Bible, your sermons just end up being about things that you like to talk about, right? Um, and you don't really talk about things that maybe are controversial or maybe just don't interest you as much. Um, but we're convinced that every word of God is inspired and life-giving. So it's a conviction that we have to, to, to put out God's word for you all, um, to hear it, to understand it, and to believe it. And in so doing, in so believing, applying it to your life and living out the implications of what God's word says. God's word will change your life. And I, I hope that you've been enjoying this uh, sermon series. We've called this sermon series, The Gospel Matters, because the, the, the letter written by Paul to the Galatian church is all about this one central issue, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that salvation comes through Jesus plus nothing else. Through the work of Christ, we are forgiven not by our works, not through the observance of days, as he mentioned, or 
or religious ritual or the amount of time that we spend praying every day. These things don't accumulate for us a certain um, um, credit to God so that he'll, he'll look over our sin. The way that God looks over our sin is through Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what the, really the main message of Galatians chapter 4 is. There is a, an odd analogy um, that our text uses at the end. Um, I don't know if you picked up on it. But it, it likens Paul or a spiritual leader or a pastor, we could say, to a pregnant mom. Did you see that? He says, I labor as in childbirth so that Christ might be formed in you. That is sort of a perplexing, maybe even disturbing image if you might imagine me pregnant with you, right? <laughs> but the scriptures teach that the pastor's job is to be sort of pregnant with his people. And the, the job that we have is the life that we want you to receive is not our own, but it's to be filled up with Christ. You say, well, that's kind of a confusing image too. What does that mean to be filled like a cup is filled with Kool-Aid or soda, right? What does it mean to be filled up with Christ? And we'll get, that, we'll get to that in a moment. But here, we have in this passage, spiritual leaders, pastors, being like pregnant moms, giving birth to their congregation. <laughs> it, might so, it might sound like an odd illust illustration, but, but it really is a wonderful one. It gives us some really excellent defining clarity to the purpose of why we're here. Why did God even save us? Why did Jesus even come to forgive our sins and for us to um, be saved? What does that even mean, to be saved? And that purpose is really simply this, that Christ be formed in us. That means that we, everywhere we go, are little Jesuses. That we are more and more like our Savior. More and more like his beauty, his compassion, his kindness, his courage. Right? to be formed into his image. Now, we've been discussing how the Jesus plus nothing gospel changes our old identity into a new one. We had biological dads, and now we have a new, better dad. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks. We are adopted as God's own children by sheer grace through faith so that we stand to inherit everything that Jesus inherits. Heaven and earth, eternal life, perfect union with the Father. Everything we were created to receive, all of his love, has been fixed in Jesus, right? Now Paul continues to describe a little bit more of how this new identity, this new reality, this new privilege gets worked into our experience. We talked about that a little bit last week too. And now he uses this, this other way of talking about it, to be filled with the fullness of Christ, to walk more and more in the reality of our purpose as God's children. To experience the assurance and the love of your relationship with the Father. And so many of us just simply don't really get this from day to day. We, we sort of walk as citizens of these, this earth. And each day goes by and we consider what am I going to eat today or who am I going to go out with? How am I going to entertain myself? Oh man, it's Monday, I have to work again. Right, so we, every day is sort of lived separately from a direct experience of a childlike dependence on the Father. And what Paul is saying here is, I am trying to work into you the reality of heaven each day. The reality that you are Christ's, that you are his, so that you'll walk with him 
and not by yourself, to be like Jesus, to be formed into him, to possess his calm and his resolve. He says, I'm zealous for this. That word zealous in the original language means like almost like red hot. I am zealous, I'm hot, I am passionate for this one thing to be worked into you that you would be like little Christs everywhere you go. And the text that we read gives us signals to demonstrate how do we know that we're being filled up with all the fullness of Jesus. What's sort of like the diagnostic test that this is happening in our lives. Now, now let me just remind you that we have maintained in the past couple of months that our greatest need and the source for us finding the real life that we've sought in all of God's creation is not found in God's creation, but it's found in the creator and relationship, intimate relationship with God our Father through Jesus plus nothing. And we have seen that the source of all of the dysfunction, all of the not realizing that, all of the sin we might call it, the source of all of the sin, um, all sin begins with seeking out what we need for life in the creation over the creator. So our need for security, our need for love, our need for affirmation and, and so on, these we aim to fulfill not from God or for, from what he says, but from what his creatures say. And how fun is that? That's a miserable process. Paul calls it slavery. And he calls it also, and this is really harsh. You ready for this? Put your seatbelt on. He calls it God-rejecting idolatry. It results in a walking death, and the only remedy is Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus saves us, friends. His creation doesn't save you. You cannot be made right. All of the dysfunction in your heart and in this world cannot be right by you being a better person. It can't happen like that. It can't be made right with getting a new girlfriend or sleeping around or doing drugs or changing your gender or whatever it might be. You are not going to set right what's wrong with your heart with any of these things. And, and we might even talk about things that we think is maybe more conservative and traditional values. Well, those won't make you right either. Being good and keeping your nose clean and working hard and getting up early and doing all those things, those aren't going to make you right either or satisfy the loneliness that you experience. Only Jesus Christ will do that. Friends, Paul says that the first signal of Christ's formation in you is that we begin to smash idols. We begin to stop relying on everything in this world to make us whole and happy. We smash idols. Verses 8 and 9, let's listen to it again. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. So he's talking about, like, let's say you guys know Christ, you believe in Christ. You see, before this, you didn't have any of that. And you, you worshiped God's creature, his creation. You, you tried to find wholeness and happiness through religion or just through sinful pleasure, right? So formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? Now, these Galatians, before they were Christians, here's a little bit of a, a context and setting. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the Galatian church. These were formerly not Jewish individuals. They were Greco-Roman, okay? So he's not talking to people who are primarily religiously Jewish. 
the Galatian church, a lot of the early church was first religiously Jewish, okay? But then it started spreading all throughout Europe and the Middle East. So these Galatian, um, these, these Galatian believers didn't have that upbringing. So in other words, they didn't use religion to earn God's favor. They used success. They used um, sensual pleasure, victory in battle. This made them great, right? Their, so their list of bragging points was different than what the Jews would use. We might make, we call it like religious versus secular, right? So religion has its own things that things make them awesome. And then the secular world has its list of things that they think make them awesome, right? Make sense? So he's talking to the Galatian church who are primarily Greco-Roman. So what that meant was they had a variety of different gods. The Roman gods, the Greek gods, they were all this plethora, this panoply of all these different gods, Zeus and all um, the goddess Diana and all these different ones. Sometimes they got mixed up because Greek and Roman gods were very similar. They had gods, idols for the sun, for weather, for love, for sex, for death, and so on. I was in India, and um, if you want to know about slavery to idolatry, go to India. Because they believe that there's a god of death. And if you don't want that god of death killing you, you have to do stuff to satisfy them. And you will see people walking around India all in black with metal tongues sticking out of their mouth and making all sorts of rituals and doing all sorts of things to keep the god of death away from them. Right? So this is maybe a little bit similar to the, how the Galatians, before they came to faith in Christ, how they were living. They had idol-worshipping temples at which they would have participated in all sorts of immoral behavior. Goddess prostitutes that when you had sex, appeased the gods. Isn't that a nice religion? <laughs> Paul says they were slaves to these gods. And he notes that they, rever they reverted back to their old devotion to these gods even after they came to faith in the one true God. But we have to stop here because it might sound like Paul is saying that they went back to worshiping Zeus and he's not saying that. He calls this emotional and spiritual slavery, devotion to false gods. So we have to add that it wasn't their old idols that they were returning to, but an old system different God, same way to be saved. You see? The reason Paul wrote to the Galatians wasn't because they started worshiping Zeus again, but because they started to believe false teachers that claimed that to be right with God, they needed to do it through religious observance, and there was no difference between that and worshiping false gods. Because both, you had to do the work. You had to be the one that satisfied the anger of the gods, right? And that's what this, that, that that's what these people who are creeping into the church were telling them to do. So what Paul's saying is that the idea that you can earn salvation through self-effort is just as much a false god and just as much a slavery as if you were worshiping Zeus himself. You see? For the Greek, keep this in mind, there were forces of nature and there were gods behind those forces of nature. So earth, fire, water, all that stuff, right? There were gods behind all that. So if you wanted a good crop, you had to do the right sacrifice to the earth god, right? 
If you wanted romantic love, you had to do the right sacrifice to the romantic love God. And if you didn't, it was your fault and he would be mad and you would lose everything. You would lose your romance, you would lose your crops, and you would lose your wealth and maybe even your health. And it would be all your fault because you did the wrong sacrifice at the wrong time, you ticked off the gods, and now you're paying for it. You see, friends, oh, you, we say, oh, that's so, that's so archaic. I'm, I'm so glad in our modern world that we don't do that anymore. Oh, don't you? Oh, friends, we don't call them gods. But what devastates you? What ends your life if you lose it? You see, friends, that's your functional God. If you can't live without fill in the blank, whether it be success in business or a romantic relationship, you see, friends, you just found your God. You just found your idol. The Bible argues that anything can be an idol that we're enslaved to. We, <clears throat> we don't serve, at least in our minds, many gods like the Greeks. We don't call them gods. We don't say that Zeus can save us, but we do say that this sort of objective, this goal makes me worth something. And when it doesn't work out, we just choose something else the next day. Isn't that true? This can save me today. That doesn't work out. Well, I'll try this tomorrow. And when it's gone, we feel as if we can't live without it. That's our savior. You see? Money, sex, marriage, so on. Any one of these things can be what we think we need most. And as such, we're slaves to them. Because if we don't get them, we'll feel like a loser. Right? Like it's all our fault. Same system as this panoply of gods that they all worshipped. One writer makes this really wise comment. He says, if anything but Jesus is requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing has become your slave master. Paul is afraid. He says, I'm afraid for you, church, in verse 10. Right? I'm afraid for you. Because they started to use religious observance to prove that they were awesome, that, they got, that God accepted them, that they were right with him. However, the more and more Christ is formed in us, the less and less we are slaves to false gods that can't save us. We don't need them, and we don't trust them anymore. You see? So we have to ask ourselves an important question. What idols this morning might we be trusting in to save us, to prove us, to demonstrate how just wonderful we are? Is it a relationship? Is it sexual pleasure? Is it morality? Friends, these things can't fix what's wrong with your heart. They can't save you. So smash that idol. And set up Christ, the only Lord and Savior, who promises to save you by grace through faith and not through your performance. Mm -hmm. Friends, when Christ is formed in you, idols start getting smashed. You start having peace and trust in what he's said for you. And you, you can stop proving yourselves with how good you look in a mirror or how much money you have saved in your bank account. You're free. You're not a slave to that anymore. The second signal, signal that Christ is being formed in us has to do with what I want to call our love reliance. Oh, and I love this one. Let's look at verse 9 again. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? 
it kind of seems here, I read one commentator, he said it, it kind of seems like Paul's almost like correcting himself here. But now that you know God, oh wait, let me rethink that. Let me say it like this, that you are known by God. Right? Like he's, he's sort of correcting himself on paper, but that's not what's happening. This is, this is a better translation of this passage. Paul is saying here, how can you turn back to idols since you know God, but more importantly, since he knows you? How can you turn back to God since he knows you? You'd think, you'd think the more important part would be that you know him. If anything's going to keep us with God, it's going to be that, that I have a love for him. What is his how, how does his love for me, what does that have to do with anything? The word know in scripture is important. To know someone in the biblical sense is very intimate. It's not just knowing of someone, like we know of the president. I don't know him from Adam, but I know of him. Knowing someone in scripture is much more intimate than this. It actually can, ha it, it can refer to sex in scripture. Adam knew Eve, right? So it's not just knowing of, it's entering into a personal relationship with someone, an intimate relationship with you. you know, so this is what Paul's saying here is, it's, it's this. He's saying, I, God sees you. He knows you. He's with you. And he loves you. He looks upon you. He knows you exist. He's on your side. He's after you. That's what Paul is saying. You are not forgotten and you are not alone. God sees you. So what's Paul really saying here? What's he arguing? That the thing that really forms Christ in us, when you really start to get what it means to be a Christian and experience the peace and fullness and satisfaction of it, it's when we understand that the power is not our love for God, but his love for us. 1 Corinthians 8.3 reads, whoever loves God is known by God, is first known by that, You know what that means? You can't, even, you can't even begin to love God unless he first loves you. You would never have loved him to begin with unless he had put his eyes of compassion on you and rescued you. 1 John 4.19, we love him. Let's, let's, if, if you don't believe me, how about this one? We love him because he first loved us. He loved us first. Okay, so this is what it's like, or what it's not like. Our relationship with God isn't like Steve Urkel's relationship with Laura Winslow. Right? You remember that classic statement that you ever what you guys, so some of you are too old for this, and some of you are too young for this. I'm like hitting just like a few people. Um, but you remember what Urkel used to say to Laura? I'm wearing you down, Laura. Yeah. Yeah. And then he would go, I'm wearing you down. Right? Friends, that's religion. Religion is God's mad at me because I screwed up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start looking good. And I'm going to start leaving him a peach. Right? And I'm going to start leaving him roses. And that anger will eventually turn into compassion. And we're, we're wearing them down. You see, Scripture says it's the opposite. It is the exact opposite. It's his love that wears us down. He is the one that first loved us. And we are the ones that wanted nothing to do with him. 
And you say, that's not true. I was never hostile towards God. Well, again, I would say this, really? You see, you might not feel like anger or hate towards God, but do you prefer him? Is, is he your hope? Is he your savior? Or is, it any, is your savior everything else in creation? And he's just sort of like an afterthought. You see, he's not, if he's not God to you, you don't love him. You see, he's just something else. See, we're, we're, <laughs> um, God's love for us wears us down. It births love in us. The primary issue then is God's love for us. That we are the objects of his grace and pleasure and his affection is set on us. Undeservedly. People that wanted nothing to do with him. That loved everything but him. See, the primary issue is that God loves us. The power of Christianity is that God has set his affection on us. Do I have affection for, pleasure in, love for God? Is That's oftentimes how we think of it. We make the Christian journey so much about the reverse. You know, what's wrong with me? I don't have enough love for God. And we try to store up, like, affection for the Lord. What's, what's, what's my problem internally? You see, we're looking on our own sort of reaction rather than God himself and what he says and, 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 and that we are the objects of his love and favor, and favor. The power of Christianity is that God has set his love on us. And if you want to stir up an affection for God, Get your eyes off of yourself and put them on the Lord and what he has said and done for you. And that will stir up love for, you, for God. Stop thinking that you're the problem. Look on God's love for you and your love will swell for him. See? The power of Christianity is that God has set his love on us. And that will always, always... When we begin to meditate on the love of God for us, it will always obliterate any unworthiness that we might feel when we fail. If we're insecure about God's love for us, we're always going to make some sort of idol, some sort of way, some sort of work that if we accomplish this, then maybe we can show that he loves us. We, we think, well, I'll fix my inadequacies, inadequacies. I'll prove that God loves me by, by the way that I look or the things that I do, the decisions that I make. We'll make ourselves beautiful to him through church attendance or Bible reading or abstinence. But we don't need to do this, friends, to make ourselves more lovely to him because he already knows us, already sees us, at our worst, and loves us anyway. So when we clean ourselves up, so to speak, it's not to get God to love us more. It's because he already loves us. And we want to worship him as a consequence. He forgives our sin and the sacrifice of his son, and he dresses us. Friends, do you know that you are known by him, by faith in Christ? He has set his eyes on you, and he thinks you look marvelous. Right? You say, well, I'm, I'm as ugly as sin. Well, join the club. Get in line. So am I. And God knows it. God knows it, loves us anyway, saves us so that he can dress us and make us beautiful. Isn't that great news? So do you know that you are known by him? That he sees everything you are and he still loves you? And that he hasn't rejected you and he calls you his own? Dr. Keller says this, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, 
but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Isn't that great news? Christ formed in us means that God's love for us is the basis of our assurance. It's our security. It's our self-esteem. His love for us. We rely on his love for us, not our love for him. He knows you. He sees you. You don't need to be seen by anyone else or someone else because the Lord of love looks upon you with kindness. So that's good news. You don't need to boost your self-esteem anymore by making another million dollars or by sleeping with another girl, right? You don't need to prove yourself anymore. So here's the third signal. How do you know Christ is being formed in you? There is a dependence shift. That's the third signal we have. Verse 17 reads this. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. Now he's talking again about this group of people that has come into the church and said, you need to perform to earn God's love and affection. Right? You need to follow these religious days or these holy moments. You've got to do this stuff, right? And God will accept you by, on, on the virtue of, of your values and your performance and behaviors. And he says, of these people, in verse 17, that they are zealous to win you over, but for no good. This is very, very important. Because again, in verses 12 through 20, Paul is reminding the Galatian church of his relationship with him. I don't know if you caught this, but he says, I lived with you. I became like you. I, pro I proclaimed Christ to you. This is verse 12. And they, it even says that they received him as an angel, as if they would have received Jesus himself. Did you notice that in the text? So in other words, they once had this great relationship, and now it's becoming dysfunctional. <clears throat> even in Paul's sickness, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but even Paul, a lot of people believe Paul had this very um, difficult um, physical sickness with his eyes. And the Bible even talks about it. Paul even talks about it in another place in Corinthians where he says, three times I prayed for it to go away. To go away. But, but the Spirit said, my grace is sufficient for you. Remember this in Scripture? So here it's coming out again. He said, I was even in this awful condition, and it created a terrible inconvenience for you, but you loved me so much that you would have torn out your own eyes if it would have helped me. So, so in other words, they had this relationship of love, and now he says, what am I, your enemy now? What's, what's happened? False teachers had crept in, told the church that they weren't saved by works, and now this was creating conflict in, in his relationship with the church, Paul's. And he says, these, these teachers are different from me, and here's how. They are zealous to win you over. This is important. Because here's a better translation. It really means this. That they wanted the church to be zealous for them. They are making much of you so that you will make much of them. Oh, this is huge. This is so important. <clears throat> They became dependent on their spiritual leaders instead of Jesus Christ. Because, friends, when Jesus isn't your God, something else has to be. Something else has to save you. It can be your works. It can be your accomplishments. It can be your religious zeal. Or it can be a man. You see, materialism makes much of possessions and pleasure. Religion makes much of morals. Cults make much of leaders. Isn't that true? Yeah. 
when you really understand the gospel, friends, when you really understand the gospel, when a church group really understands the gospel, when a pastor really understands the gospel, he doesn't need a fan base. That's not why we're here, so that I can feel good about myself. You see, you're, what, what he's saying is that sometimes a challenge in the church is that the pastors actually worship the congregation instead of Jesus. They need their affection and love. They need them to come every Sunday, because if not, maybe something's wrong with them, or they're preaching, or God doesn't love them as much. You see? So in some churches, the pastor's savior isn't Jesus. It's the emotional dependence of the church on him. In Galatia, the leaders esteemed too highly the congregation, and the congregation esteemed too highly the leaders. Does that make sense? The church becomes dependent emotionally and spiritually on the pastor or on the congregation itself, so that to be out of his favor, it almost feels like a spiritual crisis. To be out of his favor, it's like, am I out of God's favor? Am I right with God? Because now the leaders have a problem with me. You see? The church becomes emotionally and spiritually dependent on the pastor or even the congregation rather than on Jesus Christ. In this passage, false teachers serve the church to prove themselves. It's just another idol, another false savior. It is a community emotionally dependent on one another rather than on Jesus Christ. Have you been there? It's easy to do that. Oh, we need people to adore us, to need us, to be loyal to them rather than Christ so that they can know that they're good Christians or blessed by God. But here's what Paul says. So this, these, are the, the, these letters, these leaders were zealous for their affection to be put onto them. And this is what Paul says. I am laboring as a, as a mom in childbirth so that Christ is formed in you. I don't want to be formed in you. I want Christ to be formed in you. Not for Paul to be formed in them. Paul says, I was like a woman in labor. In other words, what is a woman in labor like? Get out. Get out of me. Right? I don't want that, this thing in me forever. I remember when, when, Man, when Mandy had Noel, um, I was sitting... Um, I was sitting in the room, and there was, a, there was a, another woman in the middle of labor, like she was about to give birth, um, screaming on the top of her lungs, get this out of me! So I hear this, like it was the loudest scream I ever heard. So I'm like, so, so I slowly walked, that's terrifying, right? So I slowly walked over to the door and just like, a mom in labor doesn't want that baby in there forever. A mom in labor wants that baby out. And friends, pastors, good ones, don't want you to need him. They want you to need Jesus. Right? I'm not saying churches aren't important. It's a gift that God tells us to, to pay attention to and be faithful to. But you don't need me. We don't need each other. We need the Jesus in each other. Right? You see, that actually is a healthy environment where Christ begins to
to be formed in us rather than someone's personality or someone's leadership gifts. We start to trust in Christ as the basis of our spiritual life and prosperity, not in some moment that we had 20 years ago with this anointed person, right? We don't ever want to confuse people with Jesus Christ. It's on Jesus and Jesus alone that we depend. And, <clears throat> and it is he alone that must be formed in us. So let me close. Friends, let's ask this question about each other, about ourselves, I should say. Is Christ being formed in me? Or am I trying to be like someone else? Is it Christ being formed in me? Are there idols that need to be smashed in my life? What can't I live without? Oh, friends, I hope that eventually Christ is formed in you so that you can live without most things, just not Jesus. See? The idols begin to get smashed. Friends, do you need a fresh vision of his love for you rather than solely fixating all the time on how you feel about him? Right? Can we shift our eyes off of ourselves and put it onto the Lord's love for us so that we can have a burgeoning and growing love for him? Right? Do you need a fresh vision of his love for you? And finally, would you depend on the Lord and appreciate his people rather than depend on his people and appreciate the Lord? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for all that you've done for us. God, I pray, Lord, that Christ would be formed in us. God, that we would all work diligently as women in labor so that Christ is formed in each other. Oh, God, let none, not one of us get lost to the world, to sin, to religion. God, I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be fixed and focused on Jesus Christ till Christ be formed in each one of us. God, I pray, Lord, for miracles. Send your spirit to fall on us so that Christ is formed in us. God, um, form Christ in our children, in our teenagers, in our babies, in our seniors, in the men and women, and singles and married. God, form him in us. Deliver us from those things which we are slave to, whether it be religion or drugs or sex or whatever it might be, God, deliver us so that Jesus alone is our Savior. God, we thank you for this morning. I pray also that if anyone doesn't know Jesus Christ that's watching online or maybe even this room, would you finally come to him with repentance over your sin and trust in Christ alone, that he is your Savior, he is your God and Lord, he is what you were made for. Smash your idols, come to him in faith, and he'll dress you and righteousness, and forgive your sin, and make you his child. God, we thank you for this incredible love that you've given us. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.